we'll get started. We're going through the fundamentals of the faith and uh, taking these major doctrines just a big chunk at a time. And today we're looking at salvation, um, what it means, what it is, and the different nuances and parts. Now, let me start off by saying that when you're talking about salvation, you, you, you really have kind of two approaches. You could say everything that you need to say in about 60 seconds. And I hope you have that version of the gospel and salvation. That If you're on a plane and you're going down, in 60 seconds or so, you could tell someone how they could repent of their sins and uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand the, the historicity and the theology of the gospel and repent. Jesus gave enough of the gospel on the cross after a thief had been persecuting him for him to be converted. So there should be a sense that you can Summarize the gospel in just a very few simple statements and hope you can. But there also is a sense in which it would take you the rest of your life to fully understand and to fully appreciate, to fully explain all of the tributaries that flow into that major gospel truth. So I hope that you have a couple of versions. Even if we could talk about that, you have a couple of, not versions, but editions of a gospel explanation. There's, a, there's an addition that you can give the, the guy on the plane if you have a, an hour or two with him or you're going down. There's an addition that you could give uh, someone who you were um, at a seminar with for a week. And there's an addition you can give to your neighbor that's gonna be multi-years. In other words, the, the, the gospel can be uh, contracted and compressed to its basic elements and it can be expanded into basically every verse of the Bible. Let's ask a question though first. When we say salvation, it has the idea of being saved. So when we say saved, we have to ask saved from what? But when we say saved from what, that's not a sufficient um, uh, answer to even, a uh, question to even be given an answer. We're not only saved from something, the Bible tells us we're saved from someone. And that's where people, I think, get a little concerned when we, we introduce the, the need for the gospel. The answer to the gospel is a relationship with a holy and living and wrathful God that must be appeased and must be satisfied, must be um, uh, changed, or else we can't be saved. Saved means to be saved from something. Now, to be saved from something, you have to first understand that you are in trouble with something or in something, right? Um, uh, there's a bumper sticker that I saw many times in Los Angeles, and it said, uh, uh, saved from what, question mark. Another one that said, saved, question mark, I was never lost. What are you saved from? Now, this is where I think serious Bible students can easily, um, we need to distance ourselves from the casual understanding of, of salvation, Saved from what really starts with God. In, this is an odd way to say this, but in salvation, God saves us from himself. He saves us from his wrath. He actually crucifies a member of the Trinity in our stead as a, as a substitute for those who believe. He does that so that his wrath can be poured out. So the beginning of an understanding of, uh, of God's salvation is to understand God's wrath. As, 
as I've told you before, I'll never forget my son when we was, he was younger, probably eight or, eight or nine. And um, he said, you know, why is, why is God so angry? And I said, because we're so sinful. And then we followed up and he said, well, why did God get mad at Jesus? I said, well, he poured his wrath out on him instead of us. He says, well, that wasn't really fair for Jesus, was it? And he's right. And aren't you glad God's not fair? Well, turn over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. We'll be here in just a few weeks, but we need to look at this very briefly. Because I want to talk, I want to break down salvation as a doctrine into uh, some different components, but I want to break it down uh, in, in some, uh, th- a few categories in one list, a few categories in another list, and a whole different set of categories in a third list. This first one is just really simply spelled out and um, uh, in just a linear fashion in beginning in verse 28. You know verse 28 very well. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Calling. There's a call involved. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So here's three steps. Calling, foreknowledge, predestined. God calls, and what, what does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. How do his sheep hear his voice if they're not his sheep yet? Well, you go to the next, one, next uh, concept. He foreknew us. Now, foreknowledge, we're going to, please just hold your, kind of your finger here, proverbially in your, in your mind, because we're going to come back to this in great detail in just a few weeks. Foreknowledge means to know something beforehand. Now, with God being all-powerful, with God having all sovereignty, if he knows something beforehand, he could do something to make it different had he wanted to. But if he knows it, it's an exercise of what he already is exercising in his sovereignty. And if that's a little confusing, Paul understood it might be, so he goes to the next phrase. Whom he foreknew, he predestinated. He predestined. This is the doctrine of predestination. Very clear, very spelled out. Salvation is not something that we can um, acquire on our own. God calls, God foreknows, God predestines. God is the object of all of these, these verbs. God is, and when we think of predestination, and again, we're gonna come back to this in great detail in just a few weeks. When we think about predestination, the first thing that typically flows into our mind is, wait a minute, if God predestined some, does that mean he did not predestine others? Then God's not fair, and now I'm frustrated with God. Which is the question that Paul raises in chapter nine. And his answer to that is, who are you to ask, ask God this question? But we'll get there. Can I just suggest to you that it's probably the wrong question to ask when you think about that? To think about why wouldn't God predestine everyone is is a theological question that you could wrestle with. The deeper theological question is why would God predestine me? How in the world did I become the object of his love? The answer to that is... Comforting or troubling, depending on how you interpret it. Exodus chapter 30, 
3, and, uh, which is what Moses, excuse me, what, what Moses said there in Exodus 33, quoting God, is what Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 to say, God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will give loving kindness to whom I will give loving kindness. In other words, it's his choice, it's his prerogative to glorify his son. I wish I had more explanation on that for you, but I don't. But if I can give the, the highly spiritual people who are in Sunday school today, the highly spiritual people, uh, a little hint as to what we're gonna talk about in just a few weeks. Um, when God chooses, and as God chooses, and when we get frustrated with who he chooses or who he doesn't or how he does it or how he doesn't do things, typically it's not because we don't understand what the Bible says. It's because we don't like what the Bible says. There's a difference between taking God's word at face value and changing God's word to fit our emotional responses. You go back up. Um, those who love God in verse 28, called according to his purpose. Um, there's a love relationship that God shares with believers that's at some level inexplicable and at some level deeply personal. And we will dive into that in chapter nine. He also called, verse 30, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now let me back up from that and let's talk about salvation in uh, three chronological steps. When you're thinking about salvation, you have to have these three chronological uh, uh, pillars in your mind in, in moving through the understanding. The first is justification, second is sanctification, the third is glorification. He hints at that here. Let's talk about justification for a moment. While you're in Romans there, turn back over to chapter three, verse 28. For the first three chapters, really the first five chapters, but specifically at the end of three and end of four being exemplified in, in four, Paul makes the point of God justifying people. Now, justification is an interesting word. The Greek word for justify is the same word as make righteous, make acceptable. What we need to go to heaven are two things. Number one, the removal of sin, but the removed sin puts us in a state of innocence, which is not righteousness. The removal of sin is one side. The addition of righteousness is another. So we need something taken away, our sin, something added, righteousness, in order to go to heaven. That's called being justified, being made just, being made righteous. Well, it's very clear that the summary statement of the, the, her, the whole first three chapters in, in verse 28 of chapter 3, Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified, is made righteous before God by faith apart from works of the law. This is the foundation of justification is we cannot do anything to earn God's credit, earn God's favor, earn God's merit, earn God's kind disposition. We can't. There's not enough we can do. There's not enough we can stop doing. We are doomed and lost and hopeless as sinners. Helpless, Paul says in Romans 5. Helpless. Unable to help ourselves. And yet God says... I will make you righteous before me 
This is, we spent about a year in this in Romans and, and I, I, did, I, I still don't weary of thinking about it. I will grant you everything you need, the absence of sin, the presence of righteousness, if you will believe that I've done that for you. Please don't ever get to the point where that sounds too good to be true. It's remarkable. We're justified by believing that God does the justification. We're justified by believing that we cannot justify ourselves. That's the critical component that we have to come to the the end of ourselves. Any man who wants to follow me must die to himself. Now, we could talk more and more, and again, we spent the better part of a year in Romans 3 and 4 talking about this. But remember that all of us are are natural-born um, Catholics. And what I mean by that is, in a sense, is, is that we, we have this sense, which Catholicism just uh, imbibes and teaches, that we, we add something by our works and merit to Christ's death. We, we do more. We, we, can, we can constantly be updating our spiritual resume. And if you don't get it done in this life, there's hope, because you can get it done in the next. And if you can't get it done in the next, get this someone can do it. For you. Well, this verse obliterates that kind of thinking. Praise God. Praise almighty God that our works don't contribute anything to our salvation. Or none of us would make it. Justification comes because you believe. And remember, Paul says, I know you think that that's something weird or new. So then he spends all of chapter four saying, Abraham was actually justified by faith, by believing. And he was justified before he was Jewish. Really interesting. He was made righteous by believing. God reckoned it. God, God counted his belief to him in his credit, in his ledger as righteousness. Now, where does this righteousness come from? If, if you can mark it down or talk, we can talk about it later. 2 Corinthians uh, 5, you all know, I hope very well, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin, that was Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, all of God's righteousness comes to us because of Jesus' imputation, his giving that to us. By us believing in, in, in who he is and what he did. So it's justification by faith. So when you're le- looking at the chronology of salvation, it starts with justification. The second step is sanctification. Sanctify is just a, a fancy word that means make holy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Philippians talks about this, this sanctifying um, uh, Dimension of our salvation with some interesting language here. Now, here's where we're going to wade into the deep water of mystery. I I don't know exactly how this works, but we're going to take God's word at face value, okay? Sanctification is, is becoming more conformed to the image of his son, what Romans 8 says. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's growing in our, our aversion to and our participation in sin, growing away from that and growing toward likeness of Christ. Well, Paul outlines that process very interestingly here. Um, 
He says in verse 12, Philippians 2, 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When work it out doesn't mean make works come to it. He means exercise it. Work it out. Make it live. Make it, make it uh, run. Make the, let the car run. Now verse 13 is the key. For who is at work in you? God. Who sanctifies you? Ultimately, God does. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hang on a second, Paul. Work out your salvation, imperative. God is the one at work in you, indicative. Who is responsible for your sanctification? You or God? Or letter C, all the above. Theologians call this the difference between monergism and synergism. You ever heard those terms before? Monergism, uh, justification is monergistic. It's, it's one person doing one thing. God does that all in our justification. Synergism is two things working together. Yes, God is the one who ultimately sanctifies us. However, we are to obey. We're to work it out. Read Romans 6 and 7. Paul talks over and over about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, saying no to your impulses that are sinful, making sure that you're pursuing righteous acts. In other words, we have a responsibility to be holy. And yet, the power for pursuing that holiness can only come from God. Now, the reason I belabor that is there is a grandiose movement uh, afoot today in um, modern evangelicalism where this, uh, it's the free grace movement. It's really a reiteration of the non-lordship theological doctrine. Um, Some very prominent authors have been, um, you know, sucked into this this vortex of, of confusion where they're saying, no, everything is by grace, it's the let go and let God. Just, just be passive and God will work in you. He forgives, he forgives, so you don't have to worry about that. It's all grace, it's all grace. Of course it's all grace. But work out your salvation has to mean something. Put to death the deeds of the flesh has to mean something. Dying to self has to mean something. And that's where they come together. Now here's the question that is so easily misunderstood when we talk about sanctification. It's really the same word as in that threatens us in, in justification, and that's enough. So, do I obey enough to be sanctified? Do, uh, am, I, am I proving myself obedient enough? The first answer is no, <laughs> and you never will. The second answer is God is looking for that heart that the Apostle Paul represents over a, a chapter later when he says... Um, Verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. I am working and straining. I buffet my body, not buffet. I buffet my body to make it my slave. In other words, we're, we're exercising the last part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You say, is that, is that you or that, is that God? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Yes, we, we work together in synergism is what theologians would call that. We work together with God and God intends us to that. He's glorified by our denial of sin and our pursuit of righteous thoughts and behavior. 
Frankly, justification we can't do much about. Glorification, which we'll get to in a moment, we, we can't do anything about until we're, we're dead. Our life is left in the, in the realm of sanctification, setting aside us from sin to God. That's the, that's the process. That's the actual imagery that's used. Setting aside something for something else. We're working toward, with the power of the Spirit of God, setting ourselves aside from sin and setting ourselves to holy living into God. That's sanctification. And it's progressive. We should see growth. But we've talked a little bit about this before. I just, uh, I also want to say this. It would be remiss to not say this, that there's a sense in which you should be growing and seeing um, uh, your um, holiness progress and you say, I don't do what I used to do. I don't think what I used to think. I can see growth from those things. But there's also a sense in which I'm seeing new little areas in my heart, new species of sin in my heart that I would have never seen as a less mature Christian. Does that make sense? So you're growing from things, but you're also growing into greater understandings of the idols of your own heart which always leaves us in a position of dependence on God who is the sanctifier. I mean, let me ask you, when's the last time you just had a serious prayer, prayer time before the Lord and just said, I am, I see serious areas of lapses in holiness in, in these areas of my life. Lord, please, by the power of your spirit, sanctify me and let me know your sanctifying power when I'm denying these sins. Are you involved in praying for your holiness? The third step, obviously, in, um, chronologically in salvation is glorification. Glorification means that we are glorified. Glorified means we are now in new bodies um, you know the passage very well. Uh, almost every funeral, we come back to this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, your body can't go to heaven in the way that it is. It's a dying body. We looked a little bit at the Lord's body this morning. I don't know if we're gonna have an exact one like his, but that, that teletransporting thing seems really cool to me. You know, you're just in a room all of a sudden. But what if you go in a room and the person who you want to see went into another room? I don't know how it works, but it's, uh, it, our bodies are different is what, what Paul is saying. The perishable can't go to heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery, he says. We will not all sleep, but will we change? I'll be changed. We'll not all stay dead. Death isn't the end. God changes us. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. That's glorification. For this perishable, that which dies, must put on the imperishable, that which is eternal, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on Im Im the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying, I love this. Death is swallowed up in victory. And then, then the psalmist and then Paul here, um, actually it was Hosea, and then Paul here picks it up and just mocks death. He mocks death. And if you've had a loved one die recently, if you had a loved one die, anyone that uh, is in Christ, there's a mocking tone that Paul speaks about regarding death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Did you really win? 
Then he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Then he says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as a result of the hope of glorification, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in, uh, is not in vain in the Lord. Basically, he's saying glorification is going to be great, but you can't get there. So until then, use that as motivation to be immovable, holy, faithful in your work of the Lord. When I was uh, in a um, parachurch organization in college, we... uh, we had training programs that we'd go through to, to present the gospel. And there was a lot of good that came out of that. I in no way wanted to disparage that. I was so challenged. Um, I remember going more times than I count, cold turkey evangelism on the campus. So, so helpful and fruitful for my own soul. And having that training was helpful. But looking back on it now, what we were presenting to people, which was basically the four spiritual laws, has a, law, a, a, a big emphasis on justification, being right with God, a big emphasis on glorification, going to heaven with God, and almost no mention of sanctification, which is our whole life, being holy before God here. So when you think of justification, sanctification, glorification, and salvation, I think it's important to say, thank you, God, for justification. Can't wait for glorification, but my focus is to be holy. My focus, when I look at my salvation as a believer, is Pursuing sanctification, pursuing holiness. And I think the, the epistles of the New Testament will bear that out as the accent and emphasis. Now, setting that aside, we have Paul's list, you know, calling, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, glorification. We have these three categories, the big ones, justification, sanctification, glorification. Now let's move to another little list of thinking about salvation that you've heard us uh, rehearsed many times in the last few months, and that is the, um, the three parts of the gospel. When you're talking to someone about salvation, there, it has to include these three components, these three parts. First, they're facts. There have to be facts that you affirm, facts that you believe. In other words, Jesus is who the Bible says he was. He's alive today as we're celebrating today. That this book is a, is a factual historical uh, volume. It's not just a, a fantastical mythology put together by, by a few men. We take God at his word. Probably the most fundamental um, difference between a, a, a cr- true Christian and an unbeliever is that we believe this is true which leads to our understanding of salvation of Christ and everything else. We believe that this book is absolutely true, that God, who of all people invented communication, was very effective in communicating, that God didn't have a speech impediment, that he said what he meant and meant what he said. So we start with that foundation. We believe that. Specifically with salvation, we believe in who Jesus is, is and what happened in the circumstances of his life. Um, we, we believe in, a, in the virgin birth. Just a little footnote to the footnote. Also, I, I had a conversation with someone in our church who's given me permission anonymously to talk about this. Just remember that if you're ever talking about the virgin birth, that is not the immaculate conception, okay? Um, that 
Catholic theologians refer to that as Mary's conception, not Jesus. So um, the virgin birth is the way we talk about the Lord's um, miraculous conception. Do you believe the facts of Jesus' life? His miracles, his deeds, his words. Do you believe in the historicity of the crucifixion? Do you believe in the historicity, not the mythology, the historicity of the resurrection? Those are the facts. If you don't believe the facts of the gospels, you cannot believe the gospel itself. Secondly, remember, it's facts to believe, theology to understand. We have to believe that, the, that there's, there are theological um, applications of the facts in the New Testament that are different than, than anyone else. The facts, about the, the facts about Jesus have theological nuances and understandings that the facts about anyone else doesn't have. When Jesus died on the cross, I was thinking about this on Friday when we were getting ready for the Good Friday service. You know, there was no, I just picture this as this massive event. There were crucifixions every day on that road. They just happened to choose that place that day. No fanfare, no, no stands up, no, no applause, no. It was just, he was just being crucified with three other criminals. Just like any other day. What was happening on earth was no, no way reflecting what was happening in heaven. There were theological uh, realities transpiring during his life and death that were entirely invisible to someone who didn't have the eyes of faith. And basically, as Jesus said over and over, you won't understand this until I'm resurrected and ascended. You, you won't get it until then. Now we get to look back at those facts with a theological understanding. You know, I, I understand if, if the guy jumps on the grenade and says he died for his platoon, that's, that's different than saying Jesus died for sinners, there are theological understandings we have to understand. Most of the New Testament uh, actually is explaining those theological nuances of the outworking of our faith, believing things we can't see based on the things that God has given us that did happen and we can see. So theology to understand. Let me encourage you too to be a theologian. You're, you already are a theologian. The question is what kind of theologian, how accurate a theologian, how, how faithful a theologian you are. The theologian is someone who, who thinks and teaches and believes something about God. That's you. How are you developing your theological moorings, your theological pillars? Are you reading, studying, getting in groups, taking advantage of classes? Please, please, please hone your theology. So facts, theology, the third is response. You have to respond to these facts and these theological facts. The response the Bible calls, what's the word? Repentance, which means you turn from your sin. This is that sanctification we were talking about. You're turning from your sin. You're turning toward the Lord, which is a process. No one is finished with this. Now, as we've mentioned before, there is a brand of um, Wesleyan theology that believes in total or absolute sanctification. In other words, that you can attain to a level where you are you're absolutely sanctified, completely, totally sanctified. Anyone grew up in Methodist church and remember that, that doctrine at all? Yeah, some of you do. It's, they, they hold that out in front of you, that you can get to a point where you're done with sin. Um, wish that were the case. Oh, how I wish that were the case. 
But I don't think it is because, as I said earlier, the more you grow, the more you see little parts of sin that you would have never seen as an immature um, believer. Plus, when you have the bigger sins, that's all you can see. So sometimes you have to get those big rocks out of the way to look at the pebbles. Equally as damnable, equally as culpable before God, equally as repentable, but we still look at them all the way through life. So facts, theology, and response. You know, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're talking with someone about the gospel, you can also kind of use these three categories to say, where's the hang-up? If you're sharing with someone, do you believe the facts about Jesus? And if they don't, you know where you have the work to do. If they don't believe that Jesus died for the sins of believers, then you know you have some work to do there. But if they believe that and they think, oh, I'm glad I have a fire insurance policy. I can live like I want. I don't need to repent or respond. Then you know where you have to do your work in evangelism. So I think those three areas of looking will help you not only in understanding your salvation, but also in, in evangelism. I like to ask people, I tell people, this is the three, three, response, three uh, parts of, of salvation. Where's your hangout? Where's the bone in your throat on these three areas? And I've had guys, I had a guy on a plane tell me, he says, look, I just don't believe the Bible's true. Okay, now I know what we can talk about. I've also had people who say, well, you know, um, I know that Jesus died for, for sinners, but there's, there are other people who died, and there are other religions, and so the, it's the theology of the thing that he has a problem with. And there are those who believe, look, I walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, threw my pine cone in the fire when I was eight years old, and I, I, I'm, I'm done with God, made it right with God. I never have to look back. All I have to do is live like I want to. I will see God in heaven in the end. That's the repentance part. So it will help you kind of isolate that. 